Welcome to the Mother Nurture Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrea Rosario, functional neurologist and doctor of chiropractic, specializing in functional medicine, caring for individuals and families with chronic conditions for over 15 years. Hi there, Andrea Rosario here. I hope you're having a beautiful day. Today, I really want to talk to you about food sensitivities. The last few episodes, we started off talking about your thyroid, and that naturally led to the next episode talking about autoimmunity, because most thyroid problems are autoimmune in nature, autoimmunity being where your immune system's gotten confused and is now attacking your healthy tissue and killing it. And so in that autoimmunity episode, I talked about the various triggers to creating autoimmunity. And one of those triggers is food. And not all food, of course, but food sensitivities. And I thought this would be a great conversation to have today because it's not just that food that you're sensitive to and your immune system is reacting to will cause autoimmunity, but it also causes inflammation. And so when you're inflamed, you're going to have many symptoms like brain fog, motivation issues, maybe depression or anxiety. You may have really commonly (laughs) aches and pains or trouble sleeping or feeling like you're in fight or flight, your blood pressure is high, you're on alert all the time, really jumpy. There's all kinds of things that happen when you are inflamed and having food sensitivities is a very common source of inflammation. In regard to autoimmunity specifically, if you haven't done much to address it and you've been going by sort of the standard of care and nobody's really helped you figure out the food thing, that's a really good economical, big bang for your buck direction to go in trying to figure out which foods are working for you and which aren't and if it's having an impact on the way you feel. So. I will tell you my own self, my biggest breakthrough with my autoimmune thyroid issue was when I made a food change. And it was a big food change, but I figured out what I was sensitive to and it was night and day different for me. Was it the end all be all? It was not, but it was a really good starting point that got me to a more functional spot. So that's what I'm hoping to share with you today. I want to talk to you about why the foods can cause inflammation and or autoimmunity. And I want to talk to you about how you can determine which foods are problematic for you. Okay, so with all that being said, let's dive in. In the world of food causing either inflammation or autoimmunity, ultimately the problem is undigested food has gotten into your blood and ticked off your immune system. And so there's a little bit of a different mechanism on how one might cause inflammation versus autoimmunity. And I'm about to go into that with you, but just remember undigested food is the problem. And the reason why is let's just say you ate a big old piece of banana when your body doesn't fully break it down into its magnesium and its potassium and its vitamins, when it's not breaking it all the way down yet that chunk of banana is able to leak through your intestines and go into your bloodstream, your immune system will look at that and be like, okay, well, I know what a magnesium looks like. I know what a potassium looks like, but what is this big goopy pile of yellow muck, right? And so it confuses it. It knows it's not supposed to be there. So it flags it and calls it an invader. 
And what it's flagging is that food's protein structure, which all foods have. And so that protein structure can be really, really long, like a bunch of amino acids all connected together on a chain. Bear with me here on the science. But your immune system doesn't want to carry around this whole big old thing. And so it basically will grab a hold of a few of those amino acids and say, hey, if you see this amino acid sequence, these four or five in a row, that's the enemy, okay? And so every time in the case of inflammation that it may see the banana or that amino acid sequence, it's going to say, oh my goodness, more invader, send out all the troops, all the blood cells that help to destroy invaders. And then that creates systemic body-wide inflammation. But here's where it gets tricky and it can cause autoimmunity. All of the tissues in your body also have a protein structure. And some tissues in your body can actually look like the food amino acid sequence. So in the case of gluten, most people who have thyroid issues and it's autoimmune in nature, which is most thyroid issues, those people oftentimes really react to gluten. And every time they eat gluten, it further attacks their thyroid. And the reason being that the gluten's protein structure has many amino acids lined up the same way as your thyroid. And as your cerebellum, if you want to get into detail here, they all kind of look alike protein structure wise. And so when the gluten gets through into your bloodstream, the immune system reflags and says, attack this, but it looks like a thyroid. So then the attack happens on your thyroid too. And that's how undigested food particles with all of their amino acid sequences, not broken down, getting in your bloodstream can trigger your immune system to get confused and start attacking your healthy tissue. And so this happens with many autoimmune diseases and there's actual, not to jump down a rabbit hole, but there's actual cross-reactivity with certain pathogens, bacteria, viruses, um, parasites, molds. And so it's complex when you're looking at autoimmunity, but we're just looking at the food today. So I just wanted you to know that concept of molecular mimicry. It's also known as cross-reactivity, but that undigested food getting through to your system is what confused your immune system. But if it's not attacking your own healthy tissue and you don't have autoimmunity, it will still cause inflammation because it's not supposed to be undigested in your bloodstream, okay? So worst case scenario causes molecular mimicry, which causes autoimmunity. Better case, but still lots of health negative effects would be if the undigested food is creating the inflammation. Why would your food be undigested? There are several reasons. It's very common to not be making enough stomach acid that is at the top of your digestive chain. And then the whole breakdown of foods doesn't even start happening. And it messes up the digestive juices going further down the chain as well. So those digestive juices include like your bile salts that are going to break down your fats and your enzymes that are going to break down your starches. And all of this affects your microbiome that further helps you break down your food and utilize it and make it good or bad for you, right? So it's really common for digestive juices to be dysfunctional or your microbiome to be dysfunctional. And that'll make it so your food doesn't get properly digested. So that is one. Oftentimes, Two, there is a leaky barrier system where your intestinal barrier is supposed to be really, really tightly sealed together cells. And if those cells break apart, 
and there's a wider space between the cells than there should be, then all of a sudden, even if you've got all the good digestive juices and you're trying to break down your food, it might go to one of those leaky spots in your intestines and get through the intestines and into the bloodstream. Okay, so leaky barrier systems, not proper digestive juices and microbiome. There are also other things that can happen. Here comes like the gnarly one in the room, but food coloring. Food coloring is a monster for not allowing your digestive juices and your body to break down the protein structure of any of your foods. So when that banana or that piece of gluten or whatever comes through with its protein structure, your body's job with your enzymes is to break apart each of those amino acids into individual things so that there is not a string of them together that is unrecognizable to your immune system. And so food actually stops those enzymes from doing their job and cutting down the full string of amino acid sequences that is a protein. So whatever it is served with can have a higher risk of becoming a food sensitivity. So if you've got like this beautiful, bright blue birthday cake and it's got wheat flour, so gluten, and it's got dairy, and it's got egg, your enzymes in your digestive tract will not be allowed to break down the protein structure into its individual amino acids, and the dairy, the wheat, the egg, whatever else is in your cake. And so will it break down some? Yeah, but not as well. And then you have undigested food that if it finds its way out of your digestive tract and into your blood tract, more likely to cause you inflammation or autoimmunity because it's not supposed to be there. It's a foreigner to your immune system. A less commonly known and a little more complicated way that undigested food can get into your bloodstream and take off your immune system, causing inflammation, and maybe autoimmunity would be overactive dendritic cells. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, I know. Think of it like this. Okay, you have little Pac-Man-y arms, like arms that have Pac-Man mouths that come in through your intestinal wall and purposefully snag some of your undigested food. They serve a positive purpose, even though that sounds freaky and not positive. Um, it pulls the food into your bloodstream so that it can give your immune system little tiny samples of the food so you don't become overly sensitive to things in general. And so your immune system will see the little piece of banana or the little piece of wheat or the little piece of egg and it'll be like, okay, that's harmless. It's little, it's no big deal. And that is the job of the dendritic cells. It's really important and we really want them to be working right, but sometimes they get over aggressive. And then they become like the really aggressive Pac-Man that is big and like eating and eating and eating and eating of all of your undigested food, hyperactive. And it brings too much of the food in where at that point, your immune system is like, well, this isn't okay. A little bit's fine, but this is too much. And then you become sensitive to whatever food your dendritic cells are pulling in all the time. This is oftentimes what happens when you see people who are down to like five or 10 foods. This is usually a part of the story. So it's not something that's as common. It's a little complicated to explain, but I do want to include it here because I see it a lot in my practice and I can't possibly talk about food sensitivities without talking about the little Pac-Man arms. So here we go. Okay. So those are the most common ways that undigested food make it into your blood and tick off your immune system, causing inflammation or 
autoimmunity. Now we want to try to figure out like, which foods are we reacting to, right? There is a simpler path and then there's a less expensive path. So I'm just going to go ahead and talk to you about the simpler path right now. And that is proper food testing. Not all food testing is created equally. The kind that I find to be most reliable is not inexpensive. Why is it worth the extra money? Well, let me tell you the difference. When you cook different foods different ways, it changes their protein structure. So a lot of food sensitivity tests are actually testing the raw foods. But how often do you eat raw corn, raw rice, raw egg? Not very often. But if you boil that egg, it changes its protein structure. Now, if you take a boiled egg, it looks different than a fried egg. They both look different than a raw egg. So this happens with all the foods, okay? Whether a peanut is raw or it's honey roasted, it changes its protein structure. And most food sensitivity tests only test the raw. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I personally always go with Cyrex Labs because they will give me the breakdown. How do you do with raw broccoli? How do you do with cooked broccoli? How do you do with raw carrot? How do you do with cooked carrot? You know, they break it down for you really well. And I've seen much better results with that. So all that in mind, darn Cyrex is not inexpensive. So it's not available to everybody, but that is about a $900 price at this time. I always run a test ahead of time. Not all doctors do, but I find it to be a smart thing to do to run your total immunoglobulins so that we make sure that you have enough antibodies to actually show up with a proper test result because you don't want to get a negative on everything just because your immune system wasn't strong enough to actually put up a good antibody response to the foods that they were testing. So if you're going to spend that kind of money, keep that in mind. And another thing to keep in mind with that type of testing is you have to be, have been recently eating that food. So I often tell people this in the very beginning as an option, because I'd really not to like to go like six months down the healing journey with them and have them be like, I really wish I would have done that food sensitivity test. I'm going to do it, darn it. And then they do the test, but they have to have spent, you know, a few weeks at least eating all the foods that they want to know the answer yes or no to. And so oftentimes they're things that they took out and healed without them. And then if you start throwing them all back in at the same time, then all of a sudden they're going through this huge flare, feeling awful. And it's just not the most efficient way. So it is something that's good to know, like at the beginning, before you start some big elimination diet, if that is going to be what you choose, you can also do it in the first couple of months in general, but not like six months down the line or a year down the line, you're going to either have to deal with a false negative because you're not going to reintroduce something that you know is bad for you. Or you're going to have to sit and reintroduce all the foods that you're curious about that you haven't been eating because you didn't think you felt good on it. And then you're going to feel like crud. So keep that in mind when we're talking about food sensitivity tests, best at the beginning, if you're going to do it at all. Okay. So not everybody can afford that because it's a chunk of change. What do we do instead? We do an elimination diet. And is it as black and white? Sometimes it's pretty darn black and white. And then sometimes it's very gray area and we have to do a little detective work to figure out which foods were causing the problems. So whenever you do an elimination diet, you simultaneously 
want to seal your gut barrier and your blood brain barrier. And you want to do that because if you don't seal those up, then the foods you're eating a lot of, you're going to become sensitive to them. And then we're just perpetuating this cycle. So if you're going to do elimination diet, sealing the blood brain barrier and the gut barrier is like, why would you do anything but do that? <laughs> so what an elimination diet looks like is you most often want to take out the common allergens and the most common cross reactors to the most common like autoimmune conditions, basically. So common allergens, common cross reactors. Some people I like to take out lectins, especially certain types of autoimmunities. RA in particular with that one is something that they tend to really be tied in with lectin issues. And sometimes I take out nightshades. Nightshades are particularly something I want to be careful with, with people that have pain syndromes, any kind of pain syndromes. Nightshades tend to flare up joint pain and muscle pain quite a bit. The nightshades are things like tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, eggplant, things like that. Lectins, that's a big old list. Grains, nuts, nightshades, oh goodness, a big list. So an elimination diet might look a little different from one person to the next, but in general, if you're looking at healthy meat and you're looking at most veggies and fruit minus the nightshades, you're doing pretty darn good. So how long should an elimination diet be? Quite honestly, probably not very long. We should probably be looking at six to eight weeks. I actually don't even like people to do an elimination diet unless they're being guided by a physician. A lot of people get food phobic, sad to watch. So you don't really want to do this unguided and you may want to have extra help if you have had an experience with disordered eating at all. But we want to keep it six to eight weeks because if you're on a super restricted diet for a long term, it changes your microbiome, the good and bad bacteria balance in your gut, especially the good bacteria. It stops feeding as many good bacteria species and they start to die off. And then you become more and more sensitive to various foods. You absorb less nutrients. There's less positive health benefits overall. You become sickly. So an elimination diet's an amazing tool, but I don't like doing it more than six to eight weeks. And I do not like doing it without a practitioner of some sort. If you get a practitioner that wants to keep you on a tight elimination diet long-term, or if for your health issues, you absolutely have to, because there are some people that literally have to go super restrictive because of their autoimmunity oftentimes. And so if that's the case, Holy focus on vegetable diversity, like an intense focus on vegetable diversity, an intense focus on vegetable diversity is absolutely needed to feed those good bacteria. Otherwise, you're going to spiral later down. And that doesn't even include like the emotional issues with long-term food removal. So like, I know I probably just scared the crud out of you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been working with this group for so many years that I've seen it. I couldn't have this conversation without giving you the full nitty gritty, even if it's not pleasant to hear and a little bit scary. Elimination diets are good in the right circumstance. Okay. So the last two things I want to tell you is that if you have to do a food elimination diet with a kid, they're faster. They only need a couple, like two, three weeks to clear the system before you can start doing food reintroductions to figure out what is troubling them. And with adults, like I said, six to eight weeks. So kids about like less than half that. Okay. 
And that's good news if you've ever tried to do this with a kid. When I talk about food reintros, that's the last topic I want to talk to you about today. And what I would say is you don't just do six weeks and then you're like, okay, party's on and like everything goes back in. The idea is with the elimination diet that you've calmed the waters and now you're like, okay, let's toss in this white potato. I don't know, just grabbing one out of the air. Let's toss in this white potato and let's see if it makes these big, huge ripples or if I do okay with it. And so you kind of want to go either one food group at a time or one food at a time. That's something that depends upon your own health issues. But you want to reintroduce every three to four days, no sooner. So you can kind of test the waters a little bit. But I will warn you, what you want to do is start slow at first, because sometimes you have been eating something that you didn't know you had a big reaction to. And you're like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> because I just crashed. I will tell you my own little personal story with that. I'll tell you two stories about my reintroductions because you're going to get this, I think, after this. Okay, so I was on an autoimmune protocol for too long, quite honestly. Before I was on this protocol, I was gluten-free, but I wasn't taking into account the other foods that cross-react with gluten. And so I was still having a good amount of brain fog and all that, but then I went on the protocol and I was like a hugely different person, like very, very quickly. And I couldn't even believe, I don't think I've ever been so efficient and like on it and like energetic and oh gosh, it was so amazing. And then I went to our friend's house and they put corn syrup as simple syrup in something they cooked. And I got what I call corn. And I ended up within a half hour, I was slurring my words like I had a stroke. And my husband's like, what did you drink? <laughs> like he thought I had been pounding the tequila or something. And actually the next day I woke up and it would still take me like two minutes or so to even finish a sentence. I couldn't think of the next, the very next word. It was insane. I've never experienced like anything like it. And so I took some brain anti-inflammatory pills because I've got like a whole arsenal over here, <laughs> like medical apocalypse. You should come find my house. And then I was back to normal, but it was the corn that triggered this insane reaction within my brain that affected my speech. And what was amazing about that is that was the same problem I was having when I was eating corn all the time because I was gluten-free and that's what we gluten-free people do unless we know this. And I couldn't even believe the difference. So I got a massive like, whew, that is a red light food that you should never eat that again, ever, 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 ever. So that is a red light food that I had no idea I had a problem with until I reintroduced it because the waters were calm and I threw in the corn syrup and yikes, right? Okay, second quick story is a gray area kind of yellow light food. So I went over to my girlfriend's house and we always like to have like a platter of cheeses and olives and lunch meats and things like that. And I always avoided the cheeses because I was avoiding dairy for a long while love cheese though. And so she was convincing me, oh yeah, I think you could probably do sheep cheese or goat cheese. So I tried goat cheese. It was delicious and I had no reaction. So excited because I hadn't had cheese in years. So excited. I couldn't even tell you. So then I went to the farmer's market, bought the nicest organic local goat cheese I could, had one slice a day for three weeks before I was like, I, I was so mad at my husband. I was like, you got me pregnant. I told you I'm not ready. <laughs> I had a nap every single afternoon. I was so insanely fatigued and it was like first trimester fatigue level. 
And I'm like, I know what this is. And then my moon time came and I figured, well, crap, I should probably apologize. But I don't think I did. But anyway, I digress. I had to go back over the last three weeks and when this extreme fatigue started and what I had changed and it ended up that the goat cheese just slowly crapped on the fatigue, but it wasn't a night and day like that corn syrup was. So that's kind of, I guess, what I would call a yellow light food where I might get away with it at my girlfriend's house, but I cannot go to the farmer's market and bring any home with me and eat it every day. Okay. So this is what I want to explain and exemplify here when I'm talking about the elimination diet being a great option if finances are tighter, but it is a little less black and white than the food sensitivity test. It's what most people choose, but it's helpful to do it with somebody who knows what the world they're doing. And you definitely want to be writing what you're reintroducing on a calendar. So if you're like me and three weeks later, think you are pregnant and are really mad about it, you can chill out a little bit, check the calendar and figure out what the problem was. Okay. So we talked about what causes foods to cause your autoimmunity or your inflammation that's causing you flack in your health. Um, all the different causes of that. We talked about then how to determine which foods were causing you trouble, both via food sensitivity tests and which ones are good that, and how to do a proper elimination diet with proper reintroductions. So I hope that was helpful and I look forward to talking to you next time. Take care, be well.